0: a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show.
3: Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us on this installment. And at the bottom of the hour, we'll get to uh, the stone commutation, talk a little bit about uh, the prospect of a Flynn pardon as well with former FBI agent in charge of the Jacksonville Field Office, James Casey. But we begin the show uh, with uh, perhaps the greatest living economist in the world, Thomas Sowell, making a rare uh, media appearance. And thankfully he did, particularly in these times. We need Thomas Sowell's wisdom. He provided some of it over the weekend. He uh, appeared on Mark Levin's show on Fox News Channel. And you uh, talked a little bit about uh, some of the buzz phrases that are being thrown around these days by academics and politicians like, for example, systemic racism, Thomas Sowell.
4: It really has no meaning that can be specified and tested in the way that one tests hypotheses. Uh, it does remind me of the propaganda uh, tactics of Joseph Goebbels during the age of the Nazis, uh, in which he's supposed to have said that people will believe any lie if it's repeated long enough, and loud enough, and that's what we're getting. I I don't think it's one of many words that I don't think even the people who use it have any clear idea what they're saying. Uh, their, their, their purpose is served by having other people cave in.
3: Yeah, the purpose is served by having other people cave in. And what do they do? They create a little space for themselves, don't they? The uh, Marxist revolutionaries. Isn't that what we've seen in the? Uh, Marxist utopias that were supposed to be born out of such cultural revolutions over the last uh, 120 years, let's say. Thomas Sowell uh, remarking upon the, uh, egalita- the limits of egalitarianism among the Marxists.
4: In trying to get away from uh, uh, social class differences, they create their own nomenclature who have their own stores that they alone can, uh, can uh, shop in, their own medical facilities, their own everything.
3: And uh, the prospects for America if identitarian politics were to win the day on November third.
4: Well, what I, what I see is that if the the uh, election goes goes to Biden, that that there's a, there's a good chance that the Democrats will then control all three all all the two branches of Congress and the White House, and considering the kinds of things that they're proposing. Uh, That could well be the point of no return for this country.
3: Maybe it's the point of no return for this country, regardless of the outcome on November 3rd, but just at a a different pace. That's a question. Let's put it to our friend Tony Esselin. He is a professor and writer in residence at Magdalen College of Liberal Arts. He is uh, also senior writer for Touchstone magazine and author of the books, among others, Out of the Ashes and Nostalgia. Professor Esselin, thanks so much for joining us again. Appreciate it.
5: Thanks, Dan. It's great to be here again. Good
3: to have you. And so uh, how do you receive uh, some of Thomas Sowell's observations?
5: Uh, I, I, he's, he's a brilliant man. Um, I, when he says that, that the phrase systemic racism has no specifiable meaning, I think he's exactly right. It's, it's a kind of social ether. It's unidentifiable, right? It's supposed to be there in the universe pervading everything. And you supposedly infer its existence from what you see around you, right? In inequalities that you see around you must be due to this ether that, again, can't be specified. Um,
3: and if you and, deny it, then they put you in a Kafka trap, right? By denying that you're racist or part of this yeah. systemically racist system, you're confirming that you're part of it.
5: Yeah, yeah. One of the things that Thomas Sowell is great at, and he's he's always been, is that he actually has done hard work uh, that uh, you would think sociologists would do, but they don't because sociology is now just partisan politics, mainly of the left, uh, almost exclusively of the left in academia. But anyway, he 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 go to other countries and ask what happens in this other place when you have, for instance, in, in Sri Lanka, two groups, a majority group and a minority group at each other's throats. What happens when you introduce affirmative action into that society by government policy uh what 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 results? results are horrible um or what happens to a minority group um doesn't matter whether the minority is defined in terms of race or class or whatever it doesn't matter what happens to that group when um the uh, out of wedlock birth rate goes through the roof right goes goes beyond uh, yeah, I mean, even even twenty percent, twenty-five percent would be a danger level. Seventy-five um, percent, eighty percent—that's that's not danger level. That's after the catastrophe is hit. Well, what happens to those people? Well, um, get all kinds of social pathologies and dysfunctions, including violence, from a, a you know your your core of, of, of boys and young men who, um, by by nature, are are uh, risk taking and. Um, prone to want violence want action right um, and uh, you know it's, it's, you get a you get a, you get a lot of crime right this should surprise nobody and Sowell has always done that work you, you, you take the particular nation out of the picture and its history or you take race out of the picture you change the terms or you change the races and you look at what happens
3: I want I, I, I want to get your reaction on the other end of the spectrum to um, the argument that's being made by sort of the, the black lives matter set the uh, neo-marxists really uh is what they are uh, kimberly jones has this uh, she's just an activist uh, she's suborn violence and other things but she's still a cause celeb for the the press corps unsurprisingly and she's got a a vignette that's gone viral on youtube comparing uh Uh, America to a rigged game of Monopoly. Here's what she says.
2: So for 400 rounds of Monopoly, you don't get to play at all. Not only do you not get to play, you have to play on the behalf of the person that you're playing against. You have to play and make money and earn wealth for them, and then you have to turn it over to them.
3: Hmm. And uh, so this this uh, is um, calls to mind a conversation I had with a friend over the weekend, which is sort of the left and and that sort of argument that you heard there. It's uh it's pretty easy. Um, if you you've been identified as a victim class because you don't have as much as somebody else, then you're a victim uh, who has been oppressed wrongly by people who are privileged who've got their privilege through no accomplishment of their own. So the privileged are illegitimate. Your victimization is real, thus we need to take from the privileged to give to you so as to remediate this unfair imbalance. That's a pretty simple message for the left to offer, and they're offering it persuasively among many quarters in this country.
5: Uh, First of all, nobody is 400 years old, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, The the addition of 400 years is is an interesting rhetorical tactic. It, It gives you an impression of an unbroken line of people who have been oppressed by another unbroken line of people for 400 years, all related to one another. Um, That's historical nonsense, uh, you know, uh, the force of, of African slaves brought over uh, increased very sharply during the late 18th century and the early 19th century. And then, um, then uh, Britain outlawed the slave trade. And you know, what happened in the United States, we all know. Oppression is not cumulative. Once justice begins to be done, the decks begin to be cleared, okay? Jews, in many parts of the Christian West, and we need to say this, and, and it, it, but in many parts of the Christian West, Jews were treated horribly, okay? Uh, they were treated not so horribly the closer you got to Rome and the Pope, believe it or not, uh, but, uh, you know, they were treated badly. Um, What does that mean? Does that mean that uh, Jews get to smash the windows of Gentiles because of 2,000 years of of injustice? It's insane. Or Ireland, right? The Irish have have been under the uh, boot of the English, or had been until they won their independence in the South, um, for 400 years, from the time of Queen Elizabeth and before, uh, right through to their gaining of independence in the uh, early, mid-20th century. Do they get to uh, loot because of Oliver Cromwell? Um, <laughs> that's insane, right? Well, um, nobody thinks, no No sane person can think this way. She's historically wrong, too, when she says that, that basically what she's implying is that the wealth made by the, the privileged class, in this case white people in the United States, was made off the backs of black people. Well, you know, I mean, most in most areas in the United States, um, Wealth-making went on without regard to what black people were doing in the South, and the South was economically slowed down by slavery. Um, in fact, most of American history really does not have to do with that particular question, as horrible as slavery was.
3: Uh, when, right? we com- when we come back with uh, Professor Esalen, I want to uh, tackle the question you tackled at a recent piece uh, that you penned for AmGreatness.com. Uh, improvements in material circumstances over the last 50 years, improvements of, uh, in attitudes about race over the last 50 years, and yet uh, still the tension that we see playing out in real time as we we're discussing. Uh, more with Anthony Esselin, professor and writer in residence at Magdalen College of the Liberal Arts, senior editor for Touchstone magazine and author of Out of the Ashes and Nostalgia right after this.
0: seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show.
3: Welcome back. We're speaking with Tony Esselin. He's a professor and writer in residence at Magdalen College of the Liberal Arts, senior editor for Touchstone Magazine and author of Out of the Ashes and Nostalgia. And, uh, uh, Tony, you uh, try to tackle this in a piece uh, you pen called A Reign of Error, and you ask the question, and then you proceed to explore it. Why have improvements in our material circumstances and markedly improvement attitudes about race not settled the problem? Uh, Why haven't they settled our problems, our racial tension?
5: The term Reign of Error I pick up from a sociologist, Edward Banfield, we picked it up from a fellow sociologist back in the late 60s and and what they were looking at was it was simply this right and this is the 60s too when interracial marriage was a hot subject kind of still a taboo and the first interracial kiss you know revolutionary on Star Trek I think it was in 1967 um, so the uh, Banfield, and his fellow sociologists were noting that um, racial attitudes, uh, racial prejudice, racial animus was sharply declining, and at the same time, uh, material conditions for m- Americans in the last in the previous 20 years had had uh, sharply improved um, for blacks as well as for whites, though not as much for blacks, not as quickly for blacks as for whites, but blacks were moving into the middle class. So, uh, uh, you know, the facts would suggest that everything was moving in the right direction and moving rather quickly, uh, especially with regard to racial attitudes in the right direction. Um, The problem was, one of the problems, but the big problem that Banfield does not address was the devastation of the family. He does address it, but he doesn't focus on it intensely. Um, But the the, the problem problem they didn't identify was the perception that things were terrible, okay? That perception becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's it's a reign of error. So, for instance, if black people are persuaded that nothing they do uh, will be of any avail in moving into the middle class and getting their rights recognized, um, then they may be much more prone to antisocial and self-destructive behaviors Um, because they think, what difference does it make anyway? That would be a terrible thing, he says. It would be much healthier if instead blacks believed that things were actually better than they were, okay, because that would would lead them to adopt... uh, uh, attitudes towards whites and behaviors that disarm even some of the some white people who were suspicious of them and uh, everything would then begin more and more rapidly to improve um well unfortunately i think what we've what we've got is this strange reign of error uh, and think about it we have right now in this country as i pointed out in the essay uh more than one out of six new marriages are interracial and nobody thinks anything of that. Right. Right. Nobody right. thinks anything. Of no. Every, right. We, we all have friends now who have interracial marriages and in families, right. my family. Um, nobody thinks anything of it. Right.
3: Yeah. And, uh, it, and, it, and as you, you, you sort of indicate, uh, Eli Steele actually did a great documentary on this topic in part called how Jack became black and he's a multiracial son of Shelby Steele. And, and, um, You know, he he talks about, as you say, one in six, and it's tracking to be, you know, a a quarter of the population in the not-too-distant future. So it should become making race less relevant, but the politics is making race more relevant.
5: There are a couple of problems. Um, One of them is a problem that I address in an essay that I hope gets published soon in Chronicles. Um, Ressentiment. That's French for resentment, but it doesn't mean exactly the same thing. Um, When you've got uh a a group that feels itself to be inferior even if nobody is saying to them you're inferior okay they feel themselves to be put upon but they can't avenge themselves openly um the uh result can be this spiritual poison called ressentiment where you perversely uh flip the values around so for instance In 1950, right, this is an example of this reversal of values. In 1950, 18% of black children were born out of wedlock in the United States. In 1900, that figure was even lower, okay? It was about 10%. And in 1900, there were still millions of people walking around who had been slaves themselves, okay? But, uh, you know, it was universally thought to be the right thing to do. If the girl, a young woman, got pregnant, to get married and raise the child in wedlock, right? Um, that was the right, respectable Christian thing to do, right? Universal agreement. Uh, that got flipped in the 60s, and because white people perhaps were too slow to recognize uh, the rights of blacks and um, were too. Too easygoing about segregation laws and so forth. Um, well, certain number of blacks uh, broke away entirely and said, "We don't even want to behave like those people." And they elevated um, what had been considered by both blacks and whites to be a bad thing—raising children out of wedlock—now to be a good thing. Okay, um, a reverse, an inversion of values. So now we've got 75 to 80 percent of black children in the United States being born out of wedlock. And there's nothing that you can do unless that is uh, remedied. I mean, there, there, no group of people in this world of ours can uh, succeed with that condition. On their heads right?
3: well, and, and this is, and this is what Holman Jenkins writes in his piece about uh, how to how to make uh, how to show black lives really matter, talking about getting people out of these uh, areas of concentrated poverty. He writes these islands of concentrated poverty were first created by residential housing segregation, then by public housing subsidies, then by welfare that tends to fix people at their current addresses uh, let 's try a thought experiment. What would happen in, in a few hundred census track sized neighborhoods? if they were no longer peopled exclusively by those who would leave if they could. That's a fun thought experiment, isn't it?
5: Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we do really have to get back to the moral issue of uh, of sex and marriage and raising children. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, of course, nobody wants to touch. The, the so-called conservatives don't want to touch it except that those who are v- very religious. Um, and the, the left, they don't want to touch it at all. They're horrible completely committed to um, sexual uh, licentiousness. Um, And this was pointed out by Banfield and others in the 60s when you could still have uh, reasonable conversations about these things. Johnson himself, uh, I was actually pleased to learn this. Uh, My opinion of Lyndon Johnson has gone from ambivalent to leading one of the worst human beings ever, (laughs) <laughs> um, as, as, a, as an American politician, but now I'm I'm revising that and moving back towards uh, ambivalence.
3: We're gonna yeah, have, sure. to, yeah, we're gonna have to leave it there. But I, I do yeah. appreciate it, Anthony Esselin, professor and writer in residence at Magdalen College of the Liberal Arts, senior editor for Touchdown Magazine, and author of Out of the Ashes and Nostalgia. Professor Esselin, thanks for joining
5: us. Appreciate
4: it.
6: Thanks, man.
0: Place I You're listening to the Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network.
3: In uh, North Carolina, I point North Carolina. Uh, police officers swarmed by a hostile crowd of 50 people after searching a home during a drug bust. Uh, this was um, police responding to a search of an address on the 1100 block of uh, Campbell Street in High Point, North Carolina. When a hostile crowd of 50 people showed up in front of the residence, according to a local TV station, as officers were trying to leave the property after making some arrests, they seized 15 grams of marijuana, 85 grams of heroin. Anyway, uh, they, there were drugs in the house. They searched the house, they made arrests, and they were confronted by 50... People who um, were hostile began blacking the driveway, swarming a squad car to prevent it from leaving. Officers ultimately had to use pepper spray to disperse the mob so they could take the suspects into the station, both of whom were charged with felony trafficking of heroin. That's North Carolina. Uh, in uh, New York City, we have video released of uh, an incident between uh, New York City police officers on and and uh, a mob that was protesting on July 1st and uh, the unrest that was going on in in the Bronx. This is the Bronx as well as around the country during that time period. The officer in question who was engaged in this uh, confrontation needed uh, two staples to close cuts in his head. The uh, assailant was identified as a twenty nine year old. He later surrendered himself along with his lawyer. Uh, he was charged by police uh, uh, and then Bronx D.A. uh Uh, Bronx District Attorney Darcel Clark offered deferred prosecution, meaning the suspect remains free as prosecutors continue to investigate the case and decide whether or not charges are merited, even though he engaged in a physical altercation with a police officer. Hmm. Okay. And then we're curious as to why crime is spiking in major urban centers uh, where we have seen significant unrest and lawlessness in the context of the political civilian response to it. Yeah, it's a real mystery. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by James Casey. He's a former police officer and FBI agent, served on the National Security Council, and retired as special agent in charge of the FBI's Jacksonville decision. He's currently president of FCS Global Advisors, a private investigative and crisis management firm. James Casey, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it.
1: Hey, good morning. Thank
3: you. Uh, so what about um, the uh, situation with uh, police right now and and uh, the, the focus on cutting budgets, defunding police, the sort of non-prosecution culture in places like New York and Philadelphia and Chicago and San Francisco, how does that translate to the uh, frontline police officer working a beat?
1: to be? So, you know, I think this is kind of a one-sided story and we're seeing just one side of it. Um, I like to say there's a, you know, an overwhelming silent majority of people who not only love and support their police, just... You know, can't disagree with more of what we're seeing in most of the media. Um, it really does make it tough on these men and women that are on the front lines, especially in these big cities where there's a lot of violence. And, you know, we see it with um, the increase in, you know, call outs, the increase in retirements. Uh, many of these cities are not going to be able to recruit even if they had slots. And we saw where in New York over a thousand officers have been canceled for going to the next recruit class in July. So, you know, I, I don't see how this gets any better. The crime's only going to get worse in these places. But, you know, again, I think that the overwhelming majority of people really do support the police.
3: Well, well, just AOC, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, speaking of New York, since we profiled New York case there. She says, look, uh, James, you got six billion dollars and we've seen this uptick in crime. So the six billion dollars isn't doing it. Um, so why shouldn't we cut a billion dollars or more and uh, reimagine policing? Because, you know, you guys aren't getting the job done.
1: So I started in law enforcement in 1981 in a very progressive department, and I mean progressive in terms of having resources and thinking strategically and doing things differently and having equipment and things like that. And I was in Arlington, Virginia, and it still is a, a progressive department. And, and really from 1981 until I left in you know, 1986, we had social workers. They were county workers, county employees that worked for you know, social services, and we had them on shifts. They would ride with officers uh, and deploy to calls if a social worker could lend itself to the situation, and sometimes it did. Um, I can tell you one downside of the program was it was never enough. Um, we didn't have them all the time on midnight shifts, sometimes on late evening shifts. There were never enough, but they were always with a police officer. Uh, if you follow the news in uh, St. Petersburg, Florida, they they have moved very aggressively to, um, to get rid of $3.1 million in federal money and another $3.6 million that they were going to co-contribute to hire 25 police officers in lieu of putting out a contract to hire a private company that will provide these social workers. And the chief has listed 13 different incidents that these social workers will, you know, deploy to instead of the police. And they're all things like intoxicated person, drug overdose, suicide, neighborhood disputes. You know, my prediction is many, many of these things, they're going to be sending a police officer anyway. And by the way, they're going to have 25 fewer of them to send. Um, I read over in the paper over the weekend that these social workers in in St. Petersburg will will be working 6 a.m. to 2 p.m. So that leaves another, what, 14 hours a day that the police are still going to respond.
3: And we'll hold it right there. We'll be back with more of Jim Casey, former special agent in charge of the FBI's Jacksonville Division, right after this. I'm just
0: Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is The Dan Proff Show.
3: Welcome back. We're speaking with former police officer and retired special agent in charge of the FBI's Jacksonville Division, Jim Casey. Uh, just one, one other question about policing just in terms of demoralizing the police. Is that a, is that a real thing, or is that something that police use as a cover? Some have insinuated... Jack dumphy that's a pseudonym for a Southern California cop who, writing at the City Journal, said uh, wrote, I spent the latter half of my 30-year LAPD career as a supervisor encouraging officers to extend themselves in the effort to reduce crime. Given the present political climate, if I were still in that position, I couldn't offer that same encouragement in good faith. America's police have gotten the message, they're the problem, and they're responding accordingly. How many more lives will be lost before the country sees through this lie? How do you respond to that characterization of uh, what Jack Dumphy would do if he were a supervisor today?
1: Uh, I mean it seems fairly accurate. I was assigned to the Cincinnati division in early 2000s right after there was a, a major confrontation there. There was some rioting, there were some individuals that were charged it it, it started a, as a result of a police shooting and you know the De- Department of Justice came in and there was a um, you know a, a, an agreement with DOJ and, and the Cincinnati Police Department to really scale back aggressive policing to do uh, uh they had to have a supervisor respond anytime there were hands-on a subject they had to fill out paperwork and uh, give it to a special master the police responded in the same way there for about two years they just kind of responded to the most dire of emergencies and crime went through the roof and you know eventually it overcame itself but that's what happens in these, in these cases I, I've, I've said for a while i think what you'll see is a two-tiered uh, system with this with, with police response And unfortunately, the worst of it is in these bigger cities where the police are really needed. That's where it's tough to be an officer. I think some of the more suburban departments, the areas out west, um, they won't suffer nearly as much of a a morale drain and officers leaving the profession to go do something else. But I think in the bigger cities, it is going to be a problem. And you're hard pressed to encourage young people to go do a very necessary job. I wanted
3: to get your uh, reaction to the FBI's conduct uh, throughout the course of the, Russian collusion investigation and, and even since uh, some of the personnel changes have been made uh, against the backdrop of the uh, Flynn prosecution that is still a pending matter, and of course the Roger Stone commutation uh, over the weekend by President Trump. Uh, how you think uh, your former agency has performed at the particularly at the upper reaches? And, uh, over the course of the last three years and where you think it is today in terms of an agency that the American people should have faith in again, leadership wise.
1: Well, one, they should have faith because there's too many good men and women in that 35,000 person organization who care passionately about what they're doing. Uh, And I dislike having to criticize the FBI or criticizing. I don't have to, I dislike criticizing them because I spent 25 years there and I I love the organization. Uh, But I really do think, um, Comparing the way the organization worked and the rules uh, for investigations and how the FBI stayed apolitical for you know 100 years, it, it's, it's a shame to me to see what happened during that investigation. And I put it squarely on the blame of about six people at the top of the organization, maybe a few more. And I think it really did become political. I don't know why, but, but it did. Um, I think it's very difficult to make any argument with a straight face that if you compare two investigations, one called Mid-Year Exam, which was the Hillary Clinton email case, and the second one called Crossfire Hurricane, which we all know was the Russia collusion case, they were handled 180 degrees differently from each other in terms of the hands-off prosecution, let a lot of things go by, uh, you know, no subpoenas, no search warrants, nobody – gets arrested or prosecuted in one case and very aggressive tactics to go after any process crime in the other. And
3: How unusual was the raid on Roger Stone's house? This is a non, you know, alleged nonviolent offender and he gets the uh, full drug Lord treatment.
1: Yeah. I mean, raids are hard for me to guess or anybody I think that's not there because, you know, I don't know what all the factors were in charge of in, in terms of, you know, threats or how they, you know, destruction of evidence potentially, So I don't really like the second-guess raids um, because I'm not there, but, you know, that would probably be the least of the things I think that would be um, different or, you know, compared to mid-year exam or the Clinton email exam. investigation. And look, Roger Stone is not a he's not an easy character to defend. I know. I know. I know. I don't want to don't defend, defend him that. either. But I but, mean, <laughs> but,
3: but this is precisely it. the precisely, you know, the, the assessment is, al- is always best against the people that we don't like, the people that are disreputable because their constitutional rights are just as valid as my constitutional rights are yours. And this is where, you know, in this country right now, we seem to be very cavalier about other people's constitutional rights if we don't like them. And that's a bad place to be.
1: Here's what I'd say about the Roger Stone prosecutions. I think the guy was prosecuted for lying about lying. And I don't think hardly anybody else would be prosecuted to that extent, Mm -hmm. that those were not, you know, the lies he told were basically, you know, about having been in touch with people he was never in touch with. And the whole point was to find out if he was in touch with those people.
3: Mm -hmm. And and I assume that the situation with Michael Flynn uh, is the same in terms of your view. That's even, to me, a a much easier case to, to make out.
5: Well, I think
1: the problem with the Flynn case was there were so many, um, there's so many instances where you know all the information wasn't turned over. And I mean, I really do think that, you know, having looked at the transcript, having looked at you know the versions of the 302s that are out there, having looked at you know the notes of the FBI agents, and hearing Director Comey saying he didn't think that Flynn lied, um, you know, and this was in January. Flynn doesn't get charged with lying until you know a year later, after it gets transferred to the special counsel's office. I think that, you know, it, the squeeze was put on him to tell something that he knew about, again, something that didn't happen. Uh, speaking,
3: uh, uh, speaking of the FBI um, and not one of the people that was at the top of the food chain uh, during this saga, but who was the special prosecutor? What about Bob Mueller's performance as the special prosecutor, former FBI man?
1: You know, I, I worked for Bob Mueller directly. He promoted me twice. I have great affinity for the man. Uh, he's a patriot, bled for his country. Um But I I just don't think that this was the last, I'm sorry, this was the last thing that he's going to be known for, because he really was a good leader of the FBI. A lot of us think that, you know, after 9-11, he literally came in and saved the FBI from being broken up by making some much needed changes, by making the organization focus more on um, international terrorism, on counterintelligence, on cyber and things like that. Um, it, It does appear from my vantage point, which is no different than anybody else outside the organization now, but, you know, studying it a lot that, he probably wasn't totally in charge of this mm-hmm. investigation. Um, you know, we saw the performance that he had at, uh, in front of Congress defending the, the report. It wasn't stalled by Bob Mueller standards, I can tell you that. Um, so I, I question who was really running the organization or his special counsel team at the time.
3: He is James Casey, former police officer and FBI agent, served on the, on the National Security Council, retired as special agent in charge of the FBI's Jacksonville decision. He's still in Jacksonville, helping with the RNC. He's currently president of FCS Global Advisors, a private investigative and crisis management firm. James Casey, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for
1: having me. I
4: appreciate
0: it. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show.
3: Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show on uh, Friday evening. St. Louis police officers executed a search warrant at the home of Mark and Patricia McCloskey. Yes, that's the couple that uh, brandished weapons outside their castle in St. Louis upon the occasion of uh, Black Lives Matter protesters uh, walking, really trespassing on their property and on private property generally uh, in front of their home. And there was some jawboning back and forth, you remember, between the couple and uh, the protesters. Protesters, as as uh, evidence was presented, did destroy property. They destroyed a gate that uh, provided entrance into the property, into this private drive. Uh, Nonetheless, uh, St. Louis prosecutors looking to maybe see if they can cobble together assault charges for the brandishing of the weapons against these individuals. Uh, The couple. Is uh, not at all sympathetic. Number one, they're sort of incompetent when it comes to uh, guns. You know, there was as some of the pictures showed the uh, guy holding a long gun and it was pointed at his wife. So not uh, exactly exemplars of gun safety, Uh, a, a deep dig. In the St. Louis publication about their history, both public records and interviews reveal a fuller picture of the McCloskeys as being almost in conflict with others, typically over control of private property, what people can do on their property and whose job is it to make sure they do it. They filed a lawsuit in 1988 to obtain their house, which is a castle literally built for Adolphus Bush's daughter and her husband in the early part of the 20th century. They've sued neighbors for making changes to a gravel road and twice in just over two years evicted tenants from a modular home on their property. Okay, well, you know, that's just about property rights, and that's understandable. How about this? McCloskey sued a former employer for wrongful termination. Okay, well, you know, that can happen, wrongful termination. Oh, sure, employee rights. Oh, and his sister, father, and his father's caretaker for defamation. (laughs) This is how they settle all disputes in court. In 2013, McCloskey destroyed beehives placed just outside of the mansion's northern wall by the neighboring Jewish Central Reform Congregation, left a note saying he did it, and if the mess was not cleaned up, he would seek a restraining order and attorney's fees. The uh, Jewish congregation had planned to harvest the honey and pick apples from trees on its property for Rosh Hashanah. So they're a detestable couple is my point. But that doesn't mean that they're not entitled to their Second Amendment rights just like any other American. And isn't that the point? This is the same conversation we have about free speech. Free speech isn't to protect popular speech because there's no controversy there. You would need a First Amendment. It's to protect unpopular speech. All of our constitutional rights, God-given constitutional rights, negative restraints on government that exist among us equally are intended to protect, most notably protect the detestable, the unpopular. Those are the hard cases. So it's useful, even as prosecutors try to find an angle in, uh, perhaps to charge uh, the McCloskeys with some crime, it's useful to remember this sort of opportunity for a conservative like me to rally to the defense of people I find detestable to say uh, even they, to say, not even they, to say they, they, unpopular in their neighborhood, unpopular from my point of view, uh, should have their constitutional rights to self-protection defended and no charges filed. This is
0: Fake news. He's always got their real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
3: Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Follow us at danproftshow.com. You can get podcasts on the program there as well as on Spotify and iTunes. And uh, on the social media platforms, at Dan Proft Show and at Dan Proft. And uh, last hour we talked to a uh, former FBI special agent in charge of the Jacksonville office, uh, James Casey, about uh, his view on the FBI's performance and the investigations of both uh, General Flynn as well as Roger Stone and the overall participation in Bob Mueller's uh, investigation into Russian collusion, uh, and specifically President Trump's commutation and Nancy Pelosi's protestation that it endangered national security. Uh, I want to get to another matter, and this was the Supreme Court's decisions on Thursday regarding President Trump's financial records, where he sort of got a split decision. The House Investigative Committee's not entitled to the president's financial disclosures or financial documents, tax returns, bank records, and so forth. But uh, the um, Manhattan DA, Cy Vance, is, uh, per his subpoenas for said records, was that a uh, decision consistent with precedent on what sort of litigation a sitting president has exposure to and what sort of litigation a sitting president does not have exposure to. To help us answer that question, we're pleased to be joined again by John Yu. He's the Emanuel S. Heller Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley, author of the soon-to-be-released Defender-in-Chief, Donald Trump's Fight for Presidential Power. Well, this dovetails right nicely into that topic, doesn't it? Professor Yu, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Oh, Great
2: to be back, Dan.
3: So uh, give us your your handle on that uh, so-called split decision from the high court on Trump's tax uh, returns and financial records.
2: I think it's uh, despite what you're hearing and some of the initial reports, I think this is a short term win for President Trump, but it's a longer term harm to the presidency. Uh, The short term political win is that uh, neither Cyrus Vance, the D.A. in Manhattan, who's trying to get President Trump's. Financial records, nor the congressional committees trying to get the same information, are going to be able to get it before the elections. And I think President Trump engaged in a pretty high stakes uh, legal gamble here back when these uh, demands were first made to try to push this past the elections, and he succeeded. And so I think the short term he's won. The long term harm is that the Supreme Court put the lower courts. Uh, into the field in a way that I think will harm the presidency in the longer run, because uh, the court has said in both cases that both Congress and even state district attorneys, and there are 2,000 district attorneys in the country, have the right under some conditions to demand this kind of personal information from the president and to effectively harass him with lawsuits and demands, even if it interferes with The conduct of his office.
3: And and this is distinguished from the court enforcing a subpoena against Nixon for the Watergate tapes or allowing the Paula Jones uh, federal civil suit to go forward against President Clinton for sexual harassment because it's state versus federal.
2: Yeah, Dan, that's an excellent point. I think a lot of people who have been commenting about this have, have missed that fundamental distinction between what's happened in the past and what's happened to President Trump. In the past, you could say, look, uh, the federal government fighting between itself to get information from the president is OK. The president doesn't have absolute immunity. He's not above the law. The Constitution, though, creates tools on the behalf of the other branches, Congress and the Supreme Court, to balance the president. The problem with the with what happened here last week is that now part of that power is shared or given by the Supreme Court to any state official, almost 2,300 district attorneys in the country. I think that flies in the face of what the Constitution calls a supremacy clause, the right of the federal government to conduct its affairs. I don't think that the Constitution was intended to allow state officials to sit there and try to attack the presidency or uh, or to use even these tools for partisan motives to interfere with the way the president chooses to do his job. If there's going to be a limit, and this is suggested by Justice Thomas and Justice Alito in their dissents, if there's going to be limits on the president, that Congress has the impeachment power, Congress has the power to conduct oversight, There are, uh, as, which is what happened in the Clinton investigations, there are the possibility of certain kinds of lawsuits, as happened with the Paula Jones case, but those are all still within the federal level. Here you're opening up the court is opening up the door to any state district attorney to harass the president in litigation because they have a partisan beef with him.
3: And, um, you know, what? what's your analysis? I mean, this is a little bit of psychoanalysis, not legal analysis of of Justice Roberts's jurisprudence as you've watched him uh, bounce around a bit uh, in a recent uh, the recent uh, uh, line of decisions on a range of topics from uh, but from uh, from the court. I mean, you know, what what is Justice Roberts imprint on the court uh, during his chief justiceship?
2: It's a great point and question, Dan, because it wasn't just these cases uh, where Justice uh, Chief Justice Roberts wrote the main opinion. You remember he was just a few weeks ago also in the majority that uh, curtailed President Trump's ability to end the DACA and DAPA uh, immigration deferral program, removal deferral programs. Uh, He was also uh, in the majority, although he didn't write the opinion in the case that held that federal employment law gives rights to gays and transgender. Uh, You remember last year, he was also the one who stopped putting citizenship on the census questionnaire. Uh, so you could go on and on. So one thing, A, is this is really a court now that Chief Justice Roberts commands. He, you, you notice he's the one who's calling the shots. He's the one writing these major opinions. He's the fifth vote in uh, joining with uh, liberals. Oh, I also should mention the abortion case right. uh, just a few weeks ago out of uh, Louisiana, where he was the fifth vote joining with four liberals to uh, strike down a state law on abortion, abortionists. So one, he's the one conscious. Two, I don't think he has much love for President Trump. Uh, A lot of these decisions are quite hostile to the Trump administration, and as we just saw last week, to Trump in person. And if you talk about psychodrama, three, I I mean, the best, the most charitable explanation is that maybe what Chief Justice Roberts is trying to do is reduce the political profile of the court. He's no doubt been reading these stories about Democratic nominees and Democratic senators who want to pack the Supreme Court, add six justices to it. Um, you see, he's no doubt seen people want to impeach Justice Kavanaugh. He's seen, and this is what happened in 2012 with President Obama and Obamacare. He's seen the political pressure, and we see that political pressure. He is bending, I think, like a willow reed over towards the liberal side of the court, because he seems to think that that'll reduce the political attacks, The political by reducing the profile, reduce the political attacks on the court. The problem is, in my mind, is that that makes it all the more likely that he's going to get attacked and the court's going to get attacked, because after 2012 and Democrats attacked Roberts about Obamacare and he upheld, surprisingly upheld Obamacare as the fifth vote, that only invites more political. Uh,
3: I wanted to get your take on something else. The Wall Street Journal editorial board opining over the weekend that President Trump should pardon Michael Flynn, uh, since Judge Sullivan decided to uh, continue this, uh, uh, the, this, the desire to see Michael Flynn prosecuted by requesting an unbonk review of the D.C. court's decision to uh, dismiss the charges against Michael Flynn, as per Department of Justice request, now he wants an unbonk review, of the full appellate court, and uh, the Wall Street Journal's had enough. It's outrageous and, con- and continues the politicized nature of this sorry prosecution. They write. Uh, do you agree with that assessment?
2: I think uh, that you're going to see President Trump, of course, look at pardons to reverse the effects of the Mueller investigation, which he sees as unfounded, and which Mueller eventually showed there was no evidence of Russia-Trump collusion before the election. Uh, I think this is made harder, in a way, by President Trump's Friday evening par- uh, commutation of Roger Stone's sentence. I I, I would have thought Roger Stone is a kind of political circus gamesman person. I would have thought he was not particularly deserving of commutation. Let me say the president has the absolute power to, to commute or pardon anyone who's committed, convicted of a federal crime. And there's no exceptions for that. There's no way for Congress, of the course, to reverse it. it. It is one of the president's great, uh, though rarely used, powers. Uh, I think Flynn has a much better case because, as you have just pointed out, Dan, uh, the president's and the attorney generals have, under the Constitution, controlled prosecution. The Constitution says the power of prosecution is solely in the hands of the executive branch. You have a judge here who is continuing a lawsuit, even though the Justice Department and the defendant both agree the charges should be dropped. There's no power in the courts to prosecute people. So I think Judge Sullivan is pursuing an obstinate, stubborn course to just keep the case going for uh, really unknown legal reasons. Or I don't think they're legal reasons. There may be other kinds of reasons, but not legal reasons. So I think the president could issue a pardon to, you know, fulfill the president's control over law enforcement.
3: Professor Yu, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it.
2: My pleasure, Dan. Anytime.
3: Take care.
0: Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and The Dan Proft Show. Sports and politics and sports and politics and sports and politics and intersection. Intersection. Arrogance and ignorance. Arrogance, ignorance and arrogance and ignorance.
2: Intersection.
3: Yeah, a lot of sports and politics to cover on a day where the Redskins name is no more. Had a nice run, 87 years. Now gone. Uh, Charles Barkley was on CNBC's Power Lunch. And uh, he talked a little bit about sports and politics, beginning with the uh, resumption of the uh, NBA and leading into the resumption of the NBA with some players uh, having social justice messages that are, that are pre-approved on the back of their jerseys instead of their names.
7: Well, I think you have to look at the big picture of you're a player. Uh, number one, if the, players, if the season's canceled, they're going to lose $2 billion in the next couple of years. Uh, and that's a lot of money for these players. That they could and obviously that's their money, and also they could put it back in their communities. So I think that's the main reason they have to play, if it's possible.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the multimillionaires that play in the NBA, of course, are you know, reinvesting in their community. But multimillionaires in business are just evil, greedy capitalists. Got it? Uh, too much uh, politics and sport, uh, Sir Charles?
7: Well, I think what's happening now, uh, it, we turn it into a circus. Uh, you know, we're going to spend all our time, instead of talking about racial equality and racial justice and economic justice, we spend all our time worried about who's kneeling and who's not kneeling, uh, what, what things are being said on buses, uh, what's being said on jerseys. I think we're missing the point. Uh, we need uh, police reform. We need prison reform. Uh, and we need uh, those are number two, one and two things we need to focus on. Uh, we need the cops. We need the good cops out there, police and the bad cops. Like I say, we need obviously we need police reform and prison reform. But the media, you know, we all got a job to do and they're going to spend all their time on what's on somebody's jersey and what's on the buses and who's kneeling and who's not kneeling. And that's going to defeat the purpose. My concern is just turning this thing into a circus instead of trying to do some good stuff.
3: Well, um, I share the sentiment, generally speaking, which is all that Charles really offered was general statements, police reform, prison reform. Okay, fill in the blanks, exactly what you mean by those phrases. They can mean a lot of different things. Details are relevant here. Uh, However, with respect to the media's focus on jerseys, isn't it the left that's been focused on jerseys for the better part of the last 30 years as college nicknames like the Redskins have fallen by the wayside? Just ask Miami. Uh, So the concern about what's on somebody's jersey in terms of social justice messaging on the back of it, this has been the left's obsession, starting with the team nickname on the front of it, hasn't it? Isn't that what we've seen with the purge of college nicknames and high school nicknames for decades now leading up to happening in professional sports? And this is years ago now, the Washington Bullets, right? Bullets pulled in favor of Wizards because, uh, you know, the violence in D.C. Metro, you know, if a word is misinterpreted or if an honor is redefined as an insult, then you got to get rid of it. That, that's actually a big issue because, as Emerson said, first the language is corrupted and then man is corrupted. And that's precisely what's happening, including with the Redskins. Oh, and by the way, I mean, the left is not so interested in historical accuracy or applying the concerns they have about issues and about who is celebrated across the board. Are they a good piece in the journal over the weekend from uh, University of Chicago Law Professor Todd Henderson? Uh, the court's ruling in McGirt v. Oklahoma that Congress did not disestablish Indian reservations when Oklahoma became a state in 1907 means the eastern half of Oklahoma is now Indian country, large part under the rule of tribes like the Creek and the Cherokee. You know, the Cherokee, like Elizabeth Warren. Liberals cheered the Supreme Court decision. Uh, Neil Catal, who is the former solicitor general for Obama, tweeted, so good to see tribes winning at SCOTUS, is it? Well. What about the history of some of the Indian tribes? You know, because it just doesn't comport with the uh, exploitation, noble savage line of ahistorical presentation, does it? Uh, For one thing, the tribes that will benefit from a girt fought for the Confederacy and enslaved Africans. Did you know that? The Cherokee owned slaves and denied membership to the descendants of slaves the so-called Cherokee Freedmen, until forced to accept them in 2017 under the order of a federal district court. Uh, Also, did you know, woke walkers, the Creek Indian tribe doesn't recognize marriage redefinition, so-called gay marriage. A statute passed by Creek Nation in 2001 provides, quote, a marriage between persons of the same gender performed in another Indian nation or state shall not be recognized as valid and binding In the Creek Nation. Huh. How about that? What do you say to that? What do the fans say to that? We're going to find out. Uh, In addition to this sort of uh, running. uh, MS ESPN as uh, Clay Travis calls it. Representation of these issues by ESPN. Uh, Josh Howley's FU email. From Adrian. Wojnarski, uh, who is uh, the NBA's or the uh, ESPN's lead NBA reporter. Josh Hawley, Missouri senator, of course, Republican, sent a missive out about the NBA and China. Uh, and uh, basically pointing out that the NBA's hypocrisy here, uh, as Clay Travis recounts, and he had a conversation with Josh Hawley about it. Uh, Rahali traveled to Hong Kong to witness the protest firsthand in October. So he's asking questions about uh, something he's directly familiar with. And he's trying to hold a multibillion dollar company accountable for their hypocrisy, speaking truth to power, which is what we want politicians to do, don't we? Yet yeah, two minutes after the email was sent out raising these issues. About the NBA's hypocrisy. Particularly as it relates to China. Adrian Wojnarowski fired back F.U. from his official ESPN email address. He's now been suspended. <laughs> uh, but I suppose it's going to be the fans that decide, isn't it? With the nickname changes and the social justice messaging and the kneeling. As was uh, pointed out uh, last week, I mean, can you imagine a circumstance with respect to the Black Lives Uh, Excuse me, with respect to the uh, the black national anthem being played at the opening uh, round of NFL games, as has been promised by Commissioner Goodell, where people stand for the black national anthem and kneel and a substantial number of players kneel for the national anthem. Can you imagine that circumstance? Can you imagine uh, these uh, millionaires running around, as Charles Barkley was saying? uh, You'll hear in a second with uh, uh, essentially lecturing them from the back of their jerseys about being woke enough as uh, they all turn a blind eye to one of the most repressive regimes on the planet, China, in order to make more millions. Barkley on the fans deciding.
7: For used to be a place where fans could go and get away from reality. And now it's such a mixture. I think it's going to be fascinating watching what happens with the fans. And obviously the fans are such a disadvantage because they're going through the pandemic and they don't want to see a bunch of rich people uh, talking about stuff all the time. I think it's a—like I, I say, I don't think there's a right or wrong answer, but, you know, these people all have lost their jobs. They're struggling financially. They're not going to get their jobs back. And the last thing they want to do is turn on the television and hear uh, arguments about stuff all the time. I mean, it's, it's going to be very interesting to see how the public reacts.
3: It's going to be very interesting. And, Sir Charles, I, I know you said that you don't think there's a right or wrong answer, but I think you explained— the rationale for the right answer. This is Dan Cullen.
8: There's no time left for
7: you. No time left for you.
0: You're listening to The Dan Croft Show on the Salem Radio Network.
3: Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. I um, want to get to this uh, letter that is circulating on the campus of Princeton signed by uh, many, many faculty members. No, not about uh, the way in which classes will resume on campus in the COVID era, which is to say virtually Zoom classes. Uh, But, hey, you're going to get a 10% discount. So if you're a Princeton parent, uh, instead of paying 80 grand, You're going to be paying 72, so you got that to look forward to, pass the savings on to you. Uh, I want to get to this letter, uh, the demands that are being made about how campus life should be, about how the campus authority uh, authority structure should be assembled when campus life does resume. But first, let's talk a little bit about uh, the Ivies and the model they're setting for the rest of— the country's collegiate system, as well as K 12 system, that is somewhat following suit, at least in many places. To help us do that, we're pleased to be joined by Solvay Lucia Gold, who's a Princeton grad and she's a doctoral candidate in the classics at the University of Cambridge. Solvay, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it.
6: Thanks very much for having me, Dan.
3: Uh, you recount in this piece that I read uh, of yours, uh, The Spectator, that um, when you were a freshman, Princeton suffered from a bout of meningitis B on campus which is uh, a consequential illness. And how did Princeton treat that? Uh, they shut everything down and sent everybody home, or how did they treat that?
6: Yes, we did have a bout of meningitis B. It was pretty scary, but no, Princeton did not send everybody home. Um, instead, they worked overtime to maintain the health of uh Students, but also maintaining their educational and emotional health by keeping them on campus. So, you know, they they put out uh, posters telling people not to make out with one another. They made uh, plastic cups so that you wouldn't have to share cups at parties. Mm -hmm. Um, And most importantly, they imported this uh, vaccine from Europe that is not usually available in the U.S. And they made sure that every single member of the community, faculty, staff, students uh, was vaccinated. Um and you know we took great pride in sort of being a superhuman race who had who had received this vaccine um, that nobody else in America had. Um, I'm still trying to yeah.
3: uh, reconcile parting and kissing at princeton, but uh, but okay, I'll take your word for it uh, 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 and and so so why the change why why where is that uh that grittiness that can do spirit today?
6: Well, look, I mean covid is obviously um there are a lot more questions about COVID as a disease than, than there are about meningitis. C. meningitis C is, in some ways, a scarier, more deadly disease. But we know how it works. We know how it's transmitted. Um, COVID. There are so many questions, and I understand that Princeton and there's also not a vaccine, so there's not you know there's not an obvious answer yeah. for how Princeton or how any university should be handling it. Um, although hi.
3: although we do know we we do know like the uh, you know the 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 infection fatality rate for you know under the age of thirty five or in this case under the age of twenty five is essentially nil.
6: Yes, well that's certainly true, but of course Princeton also has. A lot of older members of the faculty, um, of the staff, and Princeton, the town of Princeton is itself a town of a lot of elderly people. Um, so obviously we want to make sure that those people are protected. Um, but as I say, I think it is really surprising that Princeton, with all of its money, it has the you know, highest endowment per capita of any university in the world. The fact that this is the best they could come up with um, is, is disappointing. Um, I know, you know, you I know the administrators love the student body. I know they want what's best for the students. But I think they're prioritizing um, health concerns over, as I say, students' emotional and educational uh, well-being. It
3: seems like the hysteria um, has incredibly struck some very bright, otherwise bright people, including in the hard sciences. I mean, uh, I go back to this Georgia Tech chemistry professor who said, yes, I want to go back to work. Uh, I want to go back to teaching, but I also want to live. As if, that's really, yeah. as, a, as if that's really the trade-off we're talking about here, generally speaking.
6: Right. And uh, I, I like to think that that is not the trade-off and that, you know, with, with enough creativity, um, we could figure out some ways. For example, uh, Princeton has every year they have this giant reunion celebration um, where they bring it. They, they put tents all over campus, these huge tents. Um, and I know Amherst, for example, has ordered 20 tents. Um, to hopefully have some outdoor classes in the fall. I know they're also doing a hybrid model as well, um, but I think you know Princeton has so much money. Why not try to have classes outside under tents? Um, you know, you can put in outdoor heaters. You could do all sorts of things. Um, I'm you know I, I'm not an administrator. I'm not a health expert, and I'm I'm uh, not a consultant. So obviously I'm not totally. Uh, uh, qualified to speak about these things, but I, I don't know. It just seems to me that there could
3: be more creative solutions. Uh, when we come back with uh, Solvay Lucia Gold, who's a doctoral candidate in the Classics at the University of Cambridge, uh, did her undergrad at Princeton, as uh, we were discussing. I want to get to this letter that's circulating, some of the component parts of this letter that's been signed off on by many, many faculty members at Princeton that would funda- fundamentally change Princeton University and, and probably be a model for uh, these same forces to change other universities as well and get Solvay's reaction We'll have more with her right after this.
7: It's a shame the way you mess around with the men. It's a shame the way you have me. It's a shame the way you mess around
4: with the men. I
0: try. This is the Dan Profit Show.
3: back to the Dan Prof show and um, a letter that uh, has been uh, signed by many, many members of the Princeton faculty uh, that begins anti-blackness is foundational to America uh-huh. and uh, goes on to uh, talk about uh, America's uh, racist history. And they have a bunch of proposals about what needs to be done on campus to address This foundational anti-blackness in America. Joshua Katz is a professor of the classics at Princeton. Uh, Joshua Katz writes in Quillette about the letter for reasons why colleagues might have signed this letter, trying to give them every benefit of the doubt. Two, they signed it without reading it. I not ordinarily believe this, but I'm aware of a similar petition, not at Princeton, but people were asked to sign before knowing what they were putting their name to. Maybe it was that uh, that rather weak T defense of free speech in Harper's. Maybe that's what he was referring to. Uh, number three, they felt peer pressure to, to sign, of course. And these great independent thinkers, these great minds are that susceptible to peer pressure, to belonging. Sure, they are. And number four, they agree with some of the demands, felt it was good to act as allies and bring up the numbers, even though they don't assent to everything themselves. Well, I'm not sure I can separate uh, morally uh, those four reasons for signing, but Uh, Just to give you some examples that he raised from the letter that are particularly noxious to him. Reward the invisible work done by faculty of color with course relief and summer salary. Faculty of color hired at the junior level should be guaranteed one additional semester of sabbatical. Provide additional human services for the support of junior faculty of color. As Professor Katz writes, leave aside who qualifies as of color, though it's not a trivial point. It boggles my mind that anyone would advocate giving people extra perks for no reason other than their pigmentation. And he goes on to give uh, another, uh, another series of examples that are equally distressing. This is the one he finds the most frightening. Constitute a committee composed entirely of faculty that would oversee the investigation and discipline of racist behaviors, incidents, research, and publication on the part of faculty. Guidelines on what counts as racist behavior, incidents, research, and publication will be authored by a faculty committee for incorporation into the usual set of rules and procedures. Uh, Joshua Katz comments, Professor Katz, for colleagues to police one another's research and publications in this way would be outrageous. Let me be clear, racist slurs and clear and documentable bias against someone because of skin color are reprehensible and should lead to disciplinary action for which there's already a process. But is there anyone who doesn't believe that this committee would be a star chamber with a low bar for cancellation, punishment, suspension, even dismissal? For more on this, we're pleased to be joined again by Solve Lucia Gold. What do you make of yes. uh, some of those component parts of the letter, and particularly the parts he finds the most disturbing?
6: Look, I think the faculty letter um, is extremely disturbing, uh, largely because so many people signed on to it. Um, and I have heard that some of those people did, in fact, sign it, uh, you know, under some duress or under peer pressure. Um, I know that uh, Joshua Katz's Letter has received a fair amount of private support, not nearly enough. Of course, of
3: course, private um, support. People
6: are afraid. Yeah, <laughs> people I know.
3: Are totally afraid. But, 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 but speak to that. Speak that. You know, you're a Princeton professor, you're, you're a professor at one of the most prestigious, at least it used to be, I, I think it still is in the minds of most prestigious institutions of higher learning in the world. And you can't stand up to the mob, What hope? To, and, and you're tenured in most cases, so that you should be able to stand up to the mob without professional repercussion. But you can't do it. You won't do it. What kind of message does that send uh, to uh, the students, much less to the, the outside world? This isn't exactly Dead poet Society here, is it?
6: <laughs> it sends a very chilling message to students. I think uh, a lot of students are really hopeful, having read Joshua Katz's piece, that they can... Uh, you know, maybe, maybe speak their minds or at least have a kindred spirit on campus. But, you know, there are already petitions circulating against Joshua's letter. There are, um, you know, his his own department is publicly disavowing him. Um, you know, even for a tenured professor, the repercussions can be quite severe, but one hopes he can't be fired, but, you know, the, the, the damage to the reputation is enduring and painful and others see what happens to one person. And then they're afraid to, uh, speak out for themselves
3: which is exactly how which is exactly how mobs work and how mobs continue to gain strength as everyone knows right
6: it is exactly how mobs work um but you know mobs also well not, not not mobs but it also works the other direction which is that when one person speaks out maybe one other person feels inspired to speak out and hopefully you end up building a coalition of people who are willing to speak out and i do know that there is larger support for uh Josh's letter on college campuses around the country and around the world than uh, you might see from just reading Twitter.
3: <laughs> yeah, well, that well, sure, exactly. You have to yeah. expand your uh, your scope beyond uh, Twitter, beyond social media. There's no question about that. Um, yeah. And, and you're right, courage can be contagious too, but um, you know it needs to be present in some places to encourage uh, you know in, in encourage repetition um or emulation uh you're uh, a doctoral candidate in the classics joshua katz professor of the classics at princeton you're at cambridge at present um the classics uh that that, that's even controversial today isn't it the fact that you still have a a classics course uh western civ department uh those uh sorts of courses are on the chopping block aren't they
6: well, it depends on the university. I think in some universities, you know, the classics departments are going strong, certainly at Cambridge and at Princeton. But even the departments that are still strong departments um, are, uh, you know, suffering a lot from internal division um, from political matters like this. I don't know if you've heard about what's happened at Oxford. There is a, a group of students and alumni who have signed an extremely long list of demands to uh the uh, faculty. Mm-hmm. That includes things like, uh, you, you know, anytime we read Caesar's, uh, anytime we read Caesar, we have to provide the context of the damage done by, you know, the Roman Empire. Anytime you talk about slavery, you have to provide contextual modern day discussions of slavery in addition to just talking about slavery in the ancient world. Um, demands like that, <laughs> or uh, demands for uh, for, for shortlists for candidates, for job hires. Um, you cannot, you can never have a shortlist that consists only of white uh, candidates.
3: Uh, right, and, you, and 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 so, what you have too is you have classics departments, but so many of them are focused on decrying Western civilization, not celebrating its some of its greatest works.
6: Absolutely, it's, it's very hard sometimes to see why people choose this field if. Uh, if They're so hell bent on destroying it. And I've heard professors, you know, extremely powerful, successful professors say that the field should die and then be reborn, um, yeah. you know, looking totally different, but that the entire field of classics should be destroyed.
3: It's remarkable. Well, thank goodness uh, people like you, academics like you and Joshua Katz, are still battling it out. Sylvain, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it.
6: Thank you. Very nice speaking with you. Good speaking with you. Thank we'll kind you. Of
0: The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is The Dan Proft Show.
3: Welcome back. Uh, We want to profile those exhibiting courage in these times where it's in short supply. And um, a friend of the show, somebody we've spoken about before per his scholarship, is Glenn Lowry, who's an economics professor at Brown University. And he is the uh, featured weekend interview. Uh, He is teaching a new course on freedom of expression to students at Brown. We'll read Plato, Socrates, Milton, John Stuart Mill, George Orwell, and Alan Bloom. Mr. (laughs) Glenn Lowry also uh, reports that he's uh, thinking about adding the Paxson letter. We talked about this. This is the letter from Christina Paxson, the Brown University president, asserting that uh, oppression, prejudice, outright bigotry and hate directly personally affect the lives of millions of people in this nation every minute, every hour, and that the university has to be committed to programming courses, research opportunities that promote equity and justice. So you'll recall Lowry wrote a response to this letter because he was disgusted by it. And uh, fortunately, as he said, I'm 71. I have tenure. I have a chair, department chair, that doesn't mean the McCarthyism can't get me, but I'm as secure as anybody is ever going to be. When asked, what if you were 32 and an untenured assistant professor of English or history? Lowry responded, "Dare I even mumble a contrary word once this kind of thing has been put into the air. He um, said he was uh, he he took to the City Journal and we recounted his letter here last month to rebut Paxson's letter because uh, her letter made it sort of official university policy. And I don't think universities should have official policies about contentious political issues, says Lowry. It's interesting, too. Um, I know Glenn a little bit, and, but I didn't know his whole family story. It gets into some details about that. You know, he's overcome some things as well, including cognitive dissonance from within the ranks of his family for uh, his independent thinking, going from Reagan Republican in his early days, becoming, I, I believe, the youngest tenured economics professor at Harvard, To then uh, kind of moving back a little bit uh, on uh, because of racial issues, moving back a little bit to the left to now where he finds himself, where he is without a partisan affiliation, but clearly with a very strong, well-grounded worldview on these things. Recounted in here, which is worth noting, that he did support Obama in 2008 and 2008. He recalls that saying, oh, my God, we have a black president. What a wonderful thing it is. But I but going on to say I kind of soured. On him, in a second term, soured on the cult of personality I saw, especially among African-Americans. On Black Lives Matter, I became disillusioned with a lot of the rhetoric. I came to think that the incarceration issue is vastly more complicated than I'd come to regard it previously. He um, says that uh, many aspects of American life in which race will assert itself, and I don't want to seem to be failing to acknowledge that. There is certainly some discrimination in policing and the courts, says Lowry. But it can explain maybe 15 or 20 percent of the gap between black and white incarceration rates, not the whole thing. Most of the difference, he insists, turns on the behavior of people. If you want to call that racism, then you're calling everything racism. If you want to call behavior and differences in behavior, good and bad behavior, regardless of race, you want to call that racism, then you're calling everything racism. Then you can't have an honest conversation. You can't have a productive one. And we're never going to get out of this, this antagonistic culture to free thought and free speech and problem solving that uh, afflicts us currently. Do check it out. I'll tweet it out. Dan Prof show the, a uh, challenger of the woke company policy is the uh, weekend interview with uh, the uh, very good academic, the
0: Far from the fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof show.
3: You are fake news.
0: a complicated place you need someone to expose the political fakers fixers and takers and cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all that person is dan proft and this is the dan proft show
3: welcome back to the dan proft show so much uh, reporting on covid 19 and these case spikes in places like texas and florida and arizona and the uh, melodramatization of individual anomalous cases, it is so reckless and irresponsible to create the kind of ungrounded hysteria that is being fomented by the press corps. Uh, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. I think I made a mistake. I thought this was a hoax, but it's not. Those were the final words of a 30-year-old patient who died at Methodist Hospital in San Antonio. After attending a so-called COVID party, according to the chief medical officer at the hospital, Um, obviously, that's uh, unfortunate that that individual died. Uh, I don't believe that there is there is no serious person okay, who believes that the virus is a hoax. The conversation isn't about whether it's a hoax or not. That is a false binary that's being presented by the D.C. press corps that is pro lockdown, pro destroy the economy, pro hysteria such that one in only one in 3 Americans want to resume normal life. What kind of sense is that based on what we know to be true? Not much, as it turns out. Um, the uh, statistics on this, I mean there the this is from Alex Berzasau, friend of the show, who's a microbiologist, USA Today columnist, looking uh, from Feb 1 to June 17, US deaths from coronavirus by age group as a percentage of total. Uh, the Percentage of deaths due to the COVID is a percentage of total. Under the age of 54, so 1 to 4, 5 to 14, 15 to 24, 25 to 34, th- 35 to 44, 45 to 54, uh, the total is less than 15%. Under the age of 1, one-tenth of a percent of total deaths, 1 to 4.4% of the total deaths, 5 to 14.7%, 15 to 24, 1.1%, 25 to 34, 3%. In fact, the inf- infection fatality rate estimates by age under nine years old, 0.001, one one thousandth of a percent, Un- 10 to 19 years old, 0.0003, three one ten thousandth of a or three ten thousandth of a percent, 20 to 49 years old, infection rate by age, infection fatality rate by age. So it's one thing to say what's representative, you know, what age is representative of all deaths. It's another thing to look at all the infections by age cohort and see what is the infection fatality rate. Well, you get it in your 20 to 49 years old, nine one thousandths, excuse me, nine ten thousandths of a percent chance of dying. Nine ten thousandths of a percent chance. And we're supposed to treat, you know, the 30-year-old as like the 80-year-old with diabetes. It's obscene. And so was this comment From an emergency room doc, Uh, Dr. Cedric Dark is his name. He was on Fox News over the weekend commenting on the Texas caseload.
1: Yesterday was Texas's deadliest day of this pandemic. Over 100 people died. And I've seen reports that refrigerated trucks are coming to Texas to be able to handle bodies because there are not enough spaces in the
8: morgues. This is something that I experienced one other time back when I was in medical school. 2001, during 9-11, I actually went to medical school in New York. And from my 14th floor,
3: I could see down onto the office of the chief medical examiner, and I could see rows of refrigerated trucks, a white tarp that carried the bodies of the people that were killed in the collapse of the Twin Towers. But just to put it in perspective, more people have died in Texas from COVID than those who died during the 9-11 attack. Yeah, that's not putting it in perspective. That's sensationalizing it. Let's put it in perspective. Let's go through some stats, shall we? Pull out. Three million Americans, round numbers, three million Americans die each year from all causes. This according to the CDC. So if you distribute those deaths over states based on their percentage of the national population. Texas, 300,000 deaths a year. Florida, 198,000 deaths a year. New York, 172,000 deaths a year. New Jersey, 82,000 deaths a year. Illinois, 118,000 deaths a year. Massachusetts, 64,000 deaths a year. So Texas, just going back here, Texas to Texas, per Dr. Dark, 300,000 deaths per year. Right now you have 3,228 fatalities, COVID-19. And we know the supermajority of deaths are people over the age of 80. In fact, we know, as was mentioned on Thursday, 10% of the population, the populations of New Jersey, New York, and Massachusetts, responsible for 42% of all deaths. So Texas, 300,000 deaths, all causes on an annualized basis, 3,228 deaths right now from COVID, which, by the way, uh, is just a little above their 10-year seasonal flu average of deaths and represents a a death rate per 100,000 of 0.01%. One one one-hundredth of a percent is the death rate per 100,000. Speaking of death rates per 100,000, the CDC number, all causes, annualized basis, 863 deaths per 100,000 in calendar year. Distributed among causes, 199 per 100,000 heart disease, 184 cancer, 52 accidents, 49 chronic respiratory illness, 45 cerebrovascular illness. 37, Alzheimer's, 26, diabetes, 17, influenza, 15, suicide. And then it goes down from there. Texas, right now, their COVID death rate in raw numbers per 100,000 is 11.3, which is four deaths fewer than the 15 per 100,000 suicide number annualized across the country even in the states that have had the highest caseload and uh, the most significant fatalities, like, say, New York or New Jersey, you have uh, 32,000 deaths in New York. Actually, 32,393 to be precise. New York annualized all causes 172,000. Significant, significant percentage. But the Death rate per 100,000 is still 0.17 percent. 167 per 100,000, which puts it just underneath cancer. So it's significant. Same thing with New Jersey, 176 per 100,000. 0.18 percent is the death rate per 100,000. Illinois, 0.05 percent is the death rate per 100,000. Massachusetts, 0.12 Here's the other thing about this, which we've said for some time. When you look at these death rates per 100,000, Texas is one-seventeenth that of New York, Uh, one-eighteenth that of New Jersey, one-fifth that of Illinois, one-twelfth that of Massachusetts, Florida is... One-eighth that of New York, one-ninth that of New Jersey, uh, two-and-a-half times less than Illinois, one-sixth that of Massachusetts. But Florida and Texas have reckless Republican governors that are experimenting with human beings, and New York, New Jersey, Illinois, Massachusetts are the models. Help me reconcile that. It's lunacy. It's propaganda is what it is. And we still have propagandizing going on in the direction of school reopenings, despite what we know. Even Scott Gottlieb, who's been, though he's from the American Enterprise Institute and former Trump FDA director, has been pretty pro-lockdown, pretty uh, pretty slow to come to agreement for limited reopenings, pretty critical, frankly, of some of the reopenings. We know the toll that uh, distance learning is taking on kids, both in terms of their sociological as well as intellectual development, and yet you still have arguments against reopening coming from the press corps, some public health professionals, the example being set by places like the Ivy League, New York City public school system. The connect, there's a key connection between having good peer interactions and social-emotional well-being, says Rebecca Berry, Clinical Associate Professor of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at NYU's Langone Health in New York. In certain populations, we're seeing that our depression and anxiety are heightening with continued quarantining. We have to start talking about the calculated risk and taking some more, taking some more risk. And what do we know about uh, the two dozen countries that have resumed classes for a while now? Uh, For example, a study from the Netherlands National Institute for Public Health found that after reopening schools between May 11th and June 8th, there have been fewer reports of infections among employees at schools, no reports of employees infected by children. a study of fifty four Dutch families found no indication of children under twelve transmitting the disease at all. We know children are less likely to have severe systems symptoms even if they do contact contract excuse me the virus and uh, we're still talking about whether or not to resume school even though we know how harmful the distance learning was as well as ineffectual, it was. And we're continuing to be gaslit by anomalous stories and moving goalposts on data, and the data that is provided failing to include any context or consequence, as a little back of the envelope math, like I did with these various states, can provide. This is dangerous.
0: DanProftShow.com
3: Not only was President Trump's commutation of Roger Stone's sentence injudicious, says House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, it was also a move that compromised our national security.
9: It's staggering corruption, but I think it's important for people also to know that it's a threat to our national security. The whole impeachment process was about our national security. Uh, why we are at the Supreme, Court on these, we're on the Supreme Court on these cases was to find out about the Russian connection, and we will continue to pursue that. This case was about the Russian connection. So what the president did, we will have legislation that the president cannot commute or pardon uh, or offer clemency to anybody who commits uh, a crime, is c- convicted uh, of a crime, uh, that affects the president's behavior and his culpability. Uh, but the uh, again, people should know this isn't just about lying to Congress. That means lying to the American people, uh, it, witness tampering and the rest. And It's about our national security.
3: I don't know uh, exactly what form that uh, forthcoming legislation will take, <laughs> but the constitutionality of President Trump's move, uh, move is not in doubt by anybody who... Uh, has any understanding of the Constitution and his Article II power. Not in doubt. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, Vice President of the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation and author of Wiki at War, as well as Private Sector Public Wars. Jim, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it.
10: Hey, great to be with you. It's Monday,
3: yay! Jim. Uh, Ready to carpe diem the week I see very good uh, knowing
10: what day of the week it is is a big deal for me.
3: So, uh, what about uh, that uh, commutation? Um, setting aside the constitutionality, unless you want to try to defend Nancy Pelosi's position, but um, is that uh, was that a judicious decision by the president?
10: Well, I think what really struck me was this claim that this is about national security, and that somehow there is any credible evidence that this president has done anything that was remotely pro-Russian because materially and we now have four years of indisputable history here where this president has actually done nothing that has enabled the Russian and I was just sitting there listening to you talk and thinking about well if you were suspicious about an administration you would have been much more suspicious about the Obama administration so for example the Russians cheated for years on the INF treaty the administration said nothing about it matter of fact pressured Europeans not to make a big deal out of it. Um, The the last administration knew the Russians were operating in Afghanistan, did nothing about it. Um, They essentially gave Putin a green light to do whatever he wanted to in Syria, did nothing about it. Um, They refused to, to robustly support the Ukrainian government. They essentially had to be shamed into it. They refused to sell arms to the Ukrainian government so the Ukrainian people could defend themselves. Um, they allowed Nord Stream 2, which is the Russian energy project that's essentially undermining European energy security, to proceed without opposition. So actually, if, if Trump had done all the things the Obama administration had done, as an analyst, I might say, well, you know, um, they are enabling the administration. Maybe the um, speaker has a point here. But the reality is, is all the weaknesses, all the kowtowing, all the advantages to Russia were done under the last administration.
3: Let's, let's talk about actual national security concerns then. Um, uh, interesting piece uh, by Sheena Greitens and Julian Gerwitz in Foreign Affairs about China, in which they go into some depth in explaining this uh, this term that is part of the President Xi coda, fang kong, meaning prevent and control. And they write that uh, under Xi... Uh, the Chinese communists have spent years overhauling the country's domestic security apparatus to pursue this ambition of social control, focusing on intensified surveillance, tracking and control of citizens movements and the harsh, often preemptive punishment for anyone who the party thinks intends to violate the rules. And they uh, offer this in the context of China's vision for a global public health, essentially suggesting that the response that China offered to the coronavirus will be is a preview of the response you will see it'll just be even more harsh and more misleading for the rest of the world were another virus to emanate from China
10: you know fundamentally the chinese communist party believes that china's absence as a great power and the essentially being picked on the world that it believes happened in the last couple of centuries ago that 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 is a historical anomaly and that that china's position as a great power in the world Um, rightfully is unassailable, and that essentially the preservation and expansion of power of the Communist Chinese Party is the, the secret sauce, is the key to that. So absolute control of the Chinese Communist Party over every aspect of everything they touch, political, economic, military, diplomatic, is essential. And there's nothing more crucial than domestic control. I mean, look at I mean, Hong Kong is an absolutely breathlessly stunning example. Essentially, the, the, at a period when the Chinese reputation is it, globally it couldn't get any lower, they commit these unbelievable human rights violations in Hong Kong. And the Hong Kong government just came out today and said, well, we're going to be greatly expanding our uh, detention camp for juveniles because we just know there's a lot of youth that are going to need to be re-indoctrinated and re-educated. That's just a stunning Uh, Statement of of where we're going, and 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 she is committed to this line. I mean, today they just sanctioned uh, Cruz and Rubio, which again is symbolic, but it's just really kind of throwing down the gauntlet. Well,
3: and there's and I'm sorry to interrupt, but there's something to this that this this uh, piece too that is concerning, including in this country, as you have some who have some of the same impulses that President Xi does uh, in public office. uh, The medicalization of public security is the phrase they use you know, doing these uh, crackdowns under the auspices right. of public health?
10: Well, I, to me, this is just kind of the militarization of policy. Right, every Everything that is good for the Chinese Communist Party is a national security concern and therefore is a purview of the state. So I get really excited, for example, in, in the clip you just played, well, this is a national security issue, but well, clearly it's not. Because, again, it's an attempt to putting hands, not putting government everything not just in the hands of government but everything in the hands of one political party controlling government and that is that is really deeply disturbing i get super upset for example when people say that climate change is a national security issue that basically says that the government should take over and that this is an issue where we should tell everybody what to do and if this is an issue of national security then you know we can take a a couple of billion dollars from the Defense Department and we can put it against climate change. And but that's just as good because we're spending on national security. It is very, very dangerous to spend a national security card. I agree with you. Bringing out the example of China just shows the natural extension of these policies. And I think it should be concerned for people that how we treat our, our own domestic political environment.
3: And how should we interpret uh, the uh, move of more military presence into the South China Sea by the United States?
10: Well, I still think the Chinese are, in a sense kind of acting out of weakness. I think the the virus upset them domestically. It's definitely hurt their economy. it's hurt their global reputation. And the Chinese response to that has been to deeply double down. So, for example, you just say the UK say, hey we're we're having Huawei well, we pull out, now the Chinese are are going to take retaliatory actions against the UK. That's like the mafia saying, you know, I'm not going to pay your, you know, your protection money anymore, and the guy says, okay, we'll just come down and burn down your restaurant. I mean, their behavior has gotten more ag- aggressive and egregious. And I, I do think it's out of, out of fear as opposed to a, a, a really a of strength.
3: He is Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, VP of the Catherine Shelby Cullen Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Jim, always a pleasure. Have a good week.
0: Thank you, to my friend. the guy, why you so fly? said funky, Show on the Salem Radio Network.
3: Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and uh, there is a uh, Hollywood documentary that is forthcoming. It will be on HBO called Showbiz Kids, and it's uh, produced by uh, one of the stars from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Uh, the uh, the non-Keanu Reeves star that would be, and it focuses, among other things, not just on the trouble child stars have um, in terms of, uh, you know, coping with being a celebrity at a young age, but also the culture in Hollywood that includes sexual abuse, which we've heard a lot about uh, from Corey Feldman, we've heard uh, and the deceased Corey Haim and his description of what happened to both. Corey's Corey Feldman's that is, talk to Tiffany Fitzhenry, Hollywood screenwriter, a, spy, uh, a successful up-and-coming Hollywood screenwriter before she decided to take on the culture of sexual abuse of minors in Hollywood, the Ricky Garcia case, and now a civil suit pending against Disney, this former uh, Disney star, uh, boy you know boy band star. Uh, Listen to uh, the trailer from the uh, Showbiz Kids documentary that's forthcoming.
4: I started to work. The life of a child was not my life.
8: I was really a little girl that wanted to play with dolls.
4: We're doing the best that we can do on the set, but we also have to live in public.
6: It felt very out of control to have everybody know my name, and I didn't feel like I could trust anybody. My parents tried to protect
1: me from these dangers, but I knew that there were times when they just weren't going to be able to protect me.
6: Any industry that has that much power and is that competitive starts to become, well, who can take the most abuse?
2: It's something that parents need to see and understand that these people are
4: right there.
9: People are coming out and talking about things that they've experienced so that young women and young boys who are coming up in the game can have more awareness. Mark had expressed interest that he wanted to be an actor. This year, we've had to go
1: into savings. We've all sacrificed so she could do what she loves.
2: That changed the entire fabric of my family and the way that we work as a unit.
3: And you hear from Todd Bridges, you know, you, uh, stars that are older now, obviously from different strokes. You hear from Will Wheaton. Uh, you hear from uh, Evan Rachel Wood. Uh, and, and, you know, look, it, 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 some of this is just about, again, the coping, but the sexual abuse piece of it, the, the predatory nature of Hollywood adults with respect to kids. It, it calls to mind this interview that Larry Fishburne gave, Lawrence Fishburne, the great actor, gave to Terry Gross on Fresh Air over at NPR, where he talked about as a child actor himself, a lot of people don't know, Lawrence Fishburne started out very early. uh, Child actor himself, his dad would be on the set with a bat. And Terry Gross was like, uh, what do you mean? Like he he was that, he put that much pressure on you, like he would hit you with a bat? And Lawrence Fishburne was like, no, what are you talking about? No, my dad wouldn't hit me with bat. He had the bat to protect me from the adults on set. How chilling is that? Think about that in the context of the whole Jeffrey Epstein, uh, Ghislaine Maxwell saga. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Maureen Callahan, writer and editor for The New York Post, author of The New York Times bestseller, American Predator, The Hunt for the Most Meticulous Serial Killer of the 21st Century. Maureen, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks so much
8: for having me back,
3: Dan. Uh, And so you've uh, written about uh, Ghislaine Maxwell now that she's under arrest and uh, hopefully under careful watch uh, at the Brooklyn MCC. Uh, and this whole predatory culture that includes some very powerful men, not just limited to Randy Andy. And uh, I I assume a lot of people that are very worried about what Ghislaine Maxwell may have to say or what uh, she may have in her possession uh, that has, that provides a indicting evidence against some of these powerful men. Oh
8: yeah. I think that's to put it mildly, you know, she's sort of deputized, uh, emissaries, I guess, if you will, to speak to the media about just what kind of leverage she's got. Mm. And that is allegedly uh, video footage of these very wealthy, powerful, famous men engaged not just in sexual acts with, you know, they, they're sort of been termed young girls, uh, is the conventional parlance. I mean, I, I really do think we should be calling them children. Right. uh, uh and, and not just not just perhaps uh, you know as we've heard you know Prince Andrew uh, allegedly um, forcing himself on on uh, Virginia Roberts Jaffrey as when she was just a teenager. But but apparently there's video of orgies as well. Um, and this is why I think the the, the very first topmost concern for anyone following this case is as we put on our front page last week is you know. Keep her alive. Khalei Maxwell cannot be allowed to come to any harm in prison or to have the opportunity to commit suicide or quote unquote suicide. Uh, Uh,
3: When when we come back though, yeah, this is really interesting. I want to get to why she would be sending out uh, emissaries to the media and why she wouldn't just be using that information to leverage a plea bargain with the feds and have them then go after those uh, individuals you're describing. More with Maureen Callahan, writer, editor for the New York Post, author of the New York Times bestseller, American Predator.
0: Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show.
3: Welcome back. We're speaking with Maureen Callahan. We're talking about the Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell, a child trafficking criminal enterprise that went on largely unabated for at least at least two and a half decades, maybe longer, uh, depending on which documentaries you believe. But Filthy Rich, the Netflix documentary, certainly takes it back to the mid 90s, as do the charges against Ghislaine Maxwell. Before the break, we were talking about uh, Uh, You were saying how she's sending Ghislaine Maxwell, sending out emissaries to the media to sort of indicate the sort of evidence she may have against powerful men uh, around the world. Uh, And why would she be doing that rather than turning that over to the feds or negotiating a plea deal that would get her out of prison in exchange for all this evidence she has against uh, potentially so many more?
8: I think that she's, in fact, laying the groundwork for a plea deal and. In part, she may be attempting to salvage whatever vestige of a life she may have after that. Uh, I do think that even if she does cut a plea deal, uh, she will still be looking at prison time. Uh, I I, I just do not think that they can cut her loose uh, with this uh, decades-long history of luring and predating and grooming and— allegedly herself sexually abusing these, these young girls and children. So right. I think that she's potentially laying the groundwork for, look, he was really bad. She's already sort of taken the I was just a victim to stance. I was brainwashed by him. The Patty Hearst I defense. I was just so in love with him. Yeah. You know, it's it's too cute by half and no one's really buying that.
3: Well, and, and especially when you talk about the plea bargain because of the uh, egregious uh, plea deal that was negotiated with Epstein in uh, in Florida by former U.S. Attorney and former Labor Secretary Alex Acosta, that uh, you know has come under renewed scrutiny and rightly so.
8: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that I, I don't even know that to call it a plea deal. is farcical. Yeah. I mean he, I, you know, when he was caught by a post reporter, uh, Epstein, that is on the streets of Manhattan after serving. A few nights in, in Palm Beach County Jail, uh, you know, he said, um, basically, I, it, the analogy would be, like, I, I stole a bagel. You know, I'm not a child rapist. You <laughs> know, like, it was a misdemeanor. And, you know, we know that that uh, rightly cost Alex Acosta his job in the Trump administration. Um, I think if there is one silver lining from everything that went wrong with Jeffrey Epstein— is that the eyes of the world are on this case like never before? Uh, everything has to be done right.
3: And from um, and from the, uh, the the you know the rumblings that you're hearing, and, and perhaps including from through Jelaine Maxwell's intermediaries, I mean, who are we talking about that's in the crosshairs? There's obviously a lot of people, a lot of rich people, powerful people, famous people that Jeffrey Epstein came across. We've all seen the pictures. But uh, to have a picture with Jeffrey Epstein at an event is not the same thing to be, you know, heading off to Pedophile Island or, or getting a trip on the Lolita Express. And so the, the Bill Clintons, the Bill Gates, the Alan Dershowitzes, uh, who, who are we talking about that's really in the crosshairs?
8: The governor, uh, Bill Richardson.
3: Bill Richardson. Uh, is
8: also among those who were on the flight logs. Uh, Prince Andrew, of course. Uh, and it, it's heartening to see that the drumbeat has not been let up on Andrew. Uh, even though he's a royal and, uh, you know, it will, be, it will be interesting to see if he does or his advisors make the calculation. It's smarter, is it smarter for him to cooperate with federal prosecutors or does Ghislaine Maxwell pull that trigger and name and shame him and potentially, you know, turn over video uh, to, to, the fed, to the feds and, you know, it's, it's no longer in question, uh, his involvement in, in this child sex trafficking ring?
3: What, what about Bill Clinton? I mean, two dozen uh, trips on the plane to Pedophile Island. He just liked the beachfront view. I mean, uh, what, what about Clinton?
8: It's interesting. If you watch the Netflix documentary, there are only two eyewitnesses who place him on the island. Right. Uh, it's not in question that he's been on the plane, he's been on the island. And they say they never saw anything improper. Uh, you know, it's but it's also hard to believe that he didn't know what was going on. There's, there was one... Eyewitness who who testified to having Epstein was so depraved that he was having sex with one of these young girls on his bed on that plane in full view of everyone yes. who was on the
3: plane. Right. Uh,
8: so so the the idea that, that nobody knew again uh, it's it strains credulity.
3: Well, right, and and you you arrive at this whole complex that he set up on this uh, this uh, island in the Virgin Islands. And, and you don't ask, so like, what do you do here all the time? What's going on? And perhaps you see other people or you see a lot of girls. Uh, you see a lot of children uh, roaming around the island. Uh, and, I mean, you know, Bill Clinton is a Rhodes Scholar, remember? He's a worldly man. He's the president, former president of the United States. You don't say, this doesn't look right to me. This is odd. You, you've heard no rumors about Jeffrey Epstein in social circles in Manhattan and elsewhere in Palm Beach. I mean, come on.
8: I, I don't even know what to say to that, Dan, because you're 100% right. Yeah. You know, it will be interesting to see if this is if this is finally the one scandal that Bill Clinton cannot worm his way out of. It will be interesting to see if this is the, you know, again, we're in a very different era. This is like, we're in the post Me Too era now. You know, the, even the most ardent liberal feminists are not willing to cut guys like this, you know, slack, you know, trick to trade off, depraved behavior towards women in their personal lives for you know passing pro-female right you know yep. legislation yeah uh, it, it's, it's not working that way anymore no so more It'll be interesting to see if this scars his legacy for good.
3: No more indulgences for sale and the fact that uh, that he lied about the, the his trips to that island, both, you know in terms of the number of times he shows up on the manifest in addition to the eyewitness testimony including from Epstein's telecom guy because I did watch the filthy rich documentary mm-hmm. series that he was there um you know that that speaks to a guilty conscience again uh, it will be fascinating to see and uh, hopefully Gae Maxwell does spill her guts and present all the evidence and everybody who was involved goes down I mean <laughs> it, it seems like it seems like right this is an obvious statement to make but I, I don't know and nothing is obvious anymore to me no, I, I don't know. I don't think it's-
8: No, I don't think it's obvious at all. And and the other thing that I think is really heartening is that now the victims or the survivors no longer feel as though they will not be believed. And more and more of them are speaking out. And I think you will see a confluence of factors, you know, spearheaded by these really brave women, much in the way you saw it with the Weinstein case where the dam broke. Yeah, right. There were over 100 women who said, he did this to me. Same thing with coffee. And at a certain point, you cannot deny that that must be true.
3: Maureen, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it.
8: Thanks so much for having me, Dan. you.
3: tomorrow. Don't stop to be here. It'll be
7: than before. Yesterday's gone.
0: Yesterday's gone. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is The Dan Prof Show.
3: Welcome back. Uh, tale of two CEOs to close the show today. Let's start on the positive with Bob Unanue. He is the CEO of Goya Foods. He spoke uh, at the launch of the White House Hispanic Prosperity Initiative, and uh, he uh, said, "Today it gives me great honor." And by the way, we're all truly blessed at the time, at the same time, to have a leader like President Trump, who's a builder. That's what my grandfather did. He came to this country to build, to grow, to prosper. And so we have an incredible builder, and we pray. We pray for our leadership, our president. And we pray for a country that we will continue to prosper and grow because he is a public facing figure, the head of a big company. He is Latino. He crossed the marginal line. He did the unthinkable. He complimented President Trump. And thus he is his company is being the, the, uh, targeted for boycotting. But uh, for once, we have somebody who is not backing down. I'm not apologizing, said Mr. On not apologizing, saying the boycott uh, and the. the suggestion of uh, kneeling before the boycotters it's a suppression of speech you're allowed to talk good or or to praise one president but you're not allowed when i was called to be part of this commission to aid in economic and ed- educational prosperity and you make a positive comment and all of a sudden it's not acceptable he makes the point that when president obama called i responded to the call because he's the president of the united states when president trump called i responded to the call because he's the president of the united states yeah seems pretty sensible but uh Anything resembling common sense and just good manners is uh, controversial, depending on who's on the receiving end of it. And, of course, President Trump can't be for some in this country. Now, contrast that with uh, this colossal D-bag. Silicon Valley CEO Michael Lofthouse, he resigned from his company because of his conduct at a Carmel Valley, California restaurant, while an Asian family apparently indicated they were Trump supporters in some measure. Was celebrating a birthday.
6: Yeah. Whoa. Okay, say that again.
2: Yeah, say that again.
6: Oh, now you're shy? Say it
2: again. Say it again. Now you're shy? What's wrong with you, man? Say it one
6: more time. <laughs> I'm sorry, you need to
1: leave.
6: Yeah, you yeah. need to leave. That is not appropriate.
1: Trump's you. to f you. You need to leave.
6: <laughs> you, need
1: you, to need to leave. Need
6: you need to leave. You do not talk about no, death like to that. You, you need to leave. Asian piece of Oh, my God. Get out of here. Yeah, I'm Get out. You are not allowed here. I already I already put my You do not talk to, to our guests like that. Get out now. Who are these They are valued guests. Oh, are they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah you. You're a racist. <laughs> you are not allowed here. Right. Yeah,
3: really. No problem.
6: I'm You're saying.
3: Happy birthday. Uh, yeah, calling this Asian family a piece of blank. Trump is going to blank you. Uh, he has since resigned from the company Solid 8 in Silicon Valley. Uh, telling Fox News. I have once again begun my journey back to sobriety and have enrolled in an anti-racist program with immediate effect. I would like to deeply apologize to the Chan family. I can only imagine the stress and the pain they feel. Mm, the woke Silicon Valley CEO or the sensible, even-handed and even-tempered Robert Uno Nue, Uno uh, CEO of Goya Foods. Which sort of corporate leader do you want to see more of? Thanks for joining us on this edition of The Dan Prof. Show. Please do so again.
0: Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is The Dan Prof. Show.
4: You are
3: fake news.